HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. We're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network, and I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Today, we are going to take on the issue of transparency in our food system. This topic was the subject of the first annual joint UCLA-Harvard Food Law and Policy Conference which took place in Los Angeles last week and is a joint project of the Resnick Program at UCLA Law and the recently launched Food Law Lab at Harvard Law School. And the issue of transparency in food seems to be grabbing headlines nearly every day, whether with regard to what our food labels mean, including the issue of GMO labeling, or how our food is made and the treatment of the people, people who are sometimes children uh, that are working in the food supply chain, and even to the question of whether we are really eating what we think we're eating. I saw another study just today that was released by the nonprofit advocacy group Oceana on the shrimp industry and suggested that apparently more than 30% of the 143 shrimp products tested were misrepresented. So that's some background on all of the various aspects of transparency. And given all of this, I invited two of the law professors who presented at the conference last week to join me to delve further into these topics. And so I'm very pleased to introduce Erica George, professor of law at the University of Utah College of Law, and also the co-director of the Center for Global Justice, and Andrea Freeman, assistant professor of law at the University of Hawaii. Thanks so much for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Hi to you both. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having us. So you both were contributors to the conference last week, and you have researched the issue of transparency as applied to food from different angles. And before we talk about your specific research areas, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is driving all of this uh, in terms of the headlines, the calls for transparency, and what appears to be a real increase in consumer interest? 
Um, this is Erica. I think some of the increase in demand is the increased access to information and the way in which consumers now come to expect to have information at their fingertips. I mean, you mentioned that you saw and found a study just today. So we have a barrage of information about various things um, of varying levels of importance, but food is ultimately an intimate commodity. We consume it every day. Um, so having an interest in it seems only natural um, and wanting to get that information, I think we can only expect to see increase on the consumer side. Andrew, what about you? Do you think that this is something that's always been true or that has really been changing and evolving in recent years? I think there have been some changes that are contributing to it and some are a panic about the obesity epidemic and talk about it in the White House from Michelle Obama that is making it a more popular topic. There have been a lot of food scares, uh, people getting sick from food, and also I think the economy, because people are being more careful about what they spend money on, so they really want to be sure about the products that they're putting their money towards. That's that, that answer really um, expresses the whole array of issues that transparency can cut across and, and implicate, and indeed that food and food supply can implicate. Uh, but at the same time, I have a question about whether or not trying to get more information can also run up against the goal of having more digestible or even simpler information. And one example of this that comes to mind for me is the 30-plus names for sugar that we have for food level mm-hmm. labels. Um, which perhaps provides more detail, um, but, you know, consumers might be better off just hearing sugar. So do you have a reaction to that? You know, is there a tipping point where information, it's just too much information for consumers to use it wisely? You know, I think your question really speaks um, equally to the type of information, whether it's comprehensible, the manner in which it's presented, um, because ultimately, we want consumers to have information, or we as consumers want information so that we can take action um, and make informed choices and decisions. So more may not necessarily be better. It's the quality um, of the information that I think is crucial. And that, that's contested. That's why we have so many different words for <laughs> the same or similar, similar um, food substances. I mean, I a lot of this... Yep, go ahead, Andrea. Oh, I also think it's interesting how sometimes the food industry uses the different names that we have for products to deliberately confuse consumers. So, for example, in the federal dietary guidelines, when they talk about saturated fats, they have three different names for exactly the same thing, making people think that there are three separate things and therefore not as prevalent in certain products. They also talk about dairy products in a way that they divide them into things like a dairy dessert or a pizza or a low-fat cheese and a high-fat cheese, right? So using all these different terms can confuse consumers instead of making them more aware. I think, and I think that is, going back to sugar, certainly one of the arguments that's made about that particular ingredient um, and indeed has been the subject of some of the lawsuits around labeling, like, for example, whether or not evaporated cane juice which sounds, because it uses the word juice, arguably nicer Mm -hmm. than syrup or sugar, um, is an appropriate term. Um, But so now I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the research that you both actually did and presented last week. So, Erica, turning to you. First, you are a human rights lawyer by training, and you've written about the potential power of increased transparency to impact corporate behavior around human rights abuses in the food supply chain, which we alluded to in the intro uh, to the show. 
So I first wanted to ask you, can you give some background on the types of issues that have come up in the past and the scale and the nature of human rights abuses that exist uh, in food supply production? Um, Yes, certainly. (laughs) One of the primary issues that we're concerned with um, in the human rights realm are labor rights um, and children's rights as well. The methodology of human rights law and practice is really highly dependent on transparency. You'll have organizations named Human Rights Watch, Transparency International, Global Witness. And the idea behind that is the more that we can expose um, the existence or presence of abuses that occur anywhere in the world and in the context of food and global food supply chains, um, we begin to kind of shift the needle towards pressuring industries to change practices that place vulnerable groups at risk of human rights violations. So um, presently, there is a movement to have corporate um, chocolate or cocoa supply chains clean up. Um, This has been inspired by human rights activists. There have been policy changes to guide industry and the Harkin-Engel protocol. And there's been a move um, by some more... um, I think, uh, conscious corporate actors appreciating the convergence of their interest in having a supply, sustainable cocoa supply chain with having one that um, takes care of human rights risks as well. So certification and labeling um, as elements of transparency strategies are ways that we can begin or industry has started to begin to address concerns around um, child labor trafficking in cocoa plantations in West Africa, um, fisheries are also issues. Um, so in some of these commodity supply chains, we do see the presence of child labor, child slavery, um, but also efforts to respond to that that really I don't think would have gotten very far absent the exposure initially by rights groups and the encouragement that's been given around disclosure through certification and labeling um, among actors that are probably well-situated to look at their supply chain and throughout it um, make changes that are more protective. So one of the things that I think comes up when companies are doing this type of supply chain work and review is just the issue of their actual operational ability or real-world limitations on them being able to have a meaningful understanding of their supply chains. How much of an issue do you think that that is, or in your experience in researching this, is that an objection that you hear from companies that to some extent, you know, they can only get, um, they can only get so close to the issues in a consistent way? Well, you know, it depends on the product and it varies. So, for example, um, there's mandatory reporting requirements now um, on minerals. So there's a conflict minerals provision in the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act, and that is asking companies to disclose whether or not they know if they're sourcing minerals that go into maybe your laptop or your um, your cell phone that come from the Democratic Republic of Congo in a region that's conflict-ridden where the profits are going to illegal armed groups. Now, companies in that industry sector are having to comply with this, but one of the challenges they express having is that their supply chains are seven tiers deep, um, and they often work through intermediaries and um, are a hard press to actually determine where their goods are coming from. Um, I think they will work it out and they'll get there. An agricultural supply chain is more simple and, and often has fewer tiers. 
Um, that said, um, it's a fragmented market in the context of cocoa. It's smallhold um, farmers that are supplying to industry ultimately through intermediaries. So depending on the complexity and the, and the length of the supply chain, um, certainly it can be more difficult to get at information. Um, but I think if policies and processes are communicated down the chain um, and are part of contracts for purchasing, it becomes a priority at those lower tiers as well. Um, different as you get into illicit activity like trafficking or trade in illegal goods, but certainly for the major agricultural products that find their ways into the things that we consume, um, the, the, the situation is different. And there, there are things that can be done. Um, this isn't to say that it's costless and that it won't take effort. It will. Um, but I think the return on that investment in reducing risk to human rights and the, considering the cost consequences for people who suffer, um, it's well worth the balance. So, so you've talked about the um, accountability that can be created by organizations in civil society and NGOs. You mentioned Human Rights Watch and a couple of other organizations that have tracked these issues. What are the other um, accountability tools? I mean, I know obviously the legal system itself, and there's currently at least the early stages of a case in California about the cocoa supply chain. So can you talk about what the other options are and what the issue is in that case right now? Um, certainly, yes. I, I, I think it is important to emphasize that transparency is one tool in the kit of addressing human rights violations, right? It can be protective. If we have information, we can take steps if we're industry to avert human rights risks. Um, that said, People who've suffered also should have access to remedy, and some of the cases that are before the courts right now, you referenced um, one that's pending against Nestle, or now pending again against Nestle in the Ninth Circuit, is an example of this. So um, in the Nestle case, um, children or survivors of child trafficking and modern slavery in West Africa sued Cargill, Nestle, and other industry actors at the top of the supply chain, um, arguing that they're linked to the child slavery in the cocoa industry in the region by virtue of their supply chains. Um, and this is coming on the heels of several, several cases in the United, that have been brought in the United States, arguing that companies are having impacts overseas um, that are connected to us, either as consumers or through decisions that were made in this country. Um, it's been sharply curtailed the extent to which people from overseas can come into courts in the United States and seek remedy. But in this instance, the court in a divided panel has decided, you know, this issue ha does touch and concern the United States enough or could that we should at least allow the plaintiff's concern to plead their case in a way that shows that connection. And I think this is an appreciation for the fact that human rights are universal, that impacts can be anywhere, and to the extent that they're connected to choices and decisions made in the United States, that becomes an interest of ours. Um, but the allegations in that case involve um, human trafficking, involve slavery, um, detail abuses beyond working in hot humid conditions, but being forced to drink urine or not being fed or, or being beaten and abused. So, um, again, the brand Very that you're buying serious. didn't do these things, but they were done. And the extent to which there's a connection and there's leverage that can be used through business relationships to um, reduce these problems, I, I think is a motivation 
of this litigation, as well as adding remedy to the people who suffered. So um, this lawsuit, I think, should be seen as part of an ongoing battle between um, human rights activists and industry actors that haven't, frankly, taken responsible action. Um, There are moves that are being made, but I think this is an effort also to enhance those and amplify that the problem exists. I think many of many consumers simply aren't aware um, where their candy bar comes from and what has gone into its production. So. Yeah, and we were, um, I was just telling you, having read a little bit about this prior to the interview, and here we are on the eve of Halloween, that just as I was reading one of these articles, I was also in the midst of sneaking a piece of my children <laughs> Halloween or the, the candy that we're about to hand out tomorrow. So I do, I want to ask you, you know, how should consumers think about this? It's, um, is this, what, what would be the responsible consumer action? Do you have a view on that vis-a-vis some of these major candy suppliers in the United States? You know, I do. I think it's important to reward companies that are doing the right thing by way of laborers in their supply chain. Um, and actually, Oxfam has created a campaign beyond the brands that reports on what industries, are, what corporations are doing to protect human rights or ensure that they're not complicit in violating human rights, and actually ranking them. So I would uh, commend people to that um, because they do take up different brands, um, including ones that are probably supplying the candy you're eating right now. So I, I think a careful, conscious consumer through their purchasing choices can signal that they're willing to reward businesses that are willing to do the work of figuring out what their supply chain contacts are, taking human rights impact assessments, um, and taking steps to do the due diligence up front to prevent abuses, and also to um, provide remedy or access to grievance mechanisms to people who are placed at risk. And Beyond the Brands has been credited with some moving some corporate actors to take significant action in a number of realms, including on environmental issues. So I'm, I'm glad that um, that we're able to to highlight that. Um, it is my sense that this does matter to businesses. I, I have spoken with some of the major um, cocoa buyers that are behind these brands, um, and reputational impacts and interests are important to them, um, right? These are candy companies. They sell products to children, um, and I think they would necessarily be concerned if they were implicated in child abuse, um, whether it's in the West Coast of Africa or in Vietnam. Um, so this is on their agenda, but what has been glacially slow has been the place of progress. I think where consumers can play a role is accelerating um, this issue by, determ- by demonstrating that it is of interest. So I want to take a short break and then come back and hear from you, Andrea, on a slightly different take on the implications of transparency. So we'll be back in a minute. To it's cold and beautiful by magical mistakes.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, everyone, and we're back on Eating Matters, and I want to turn our conversation about transparency in the food system to Andrea Freeman, a professor, a law professor at University of Hawaii. And, Andrea, you have been focusing a lot of your work uh, around the questions of the implications of transparency in the food system on issues of health disparities and in particular structural issues that you see as contributing to those health disparities. And in your more recent research, I, I think um, I've read it to see that you have a, are expressing a worry about transparency, that even if it's well-intentioned, it can actually undercut broader reforms that are needed in food systems. So I wanted to hear from you a little, in a little bit more detail about um, some of what you're, what you're driving at there and maybe an example of where that issue arises. Okay, great. Thank you, Kim. So one of the most recent issues in consumer transparency in food has been the new food labels that the FDA has proposed that should be appearing on food in the coming year. And they've made some good changes to the label. They have a bigger size on the calories. They've changed the serving size to make it more appropriate. They've put an extra line in for... Uh, refined sugars instead of natural sugars, and a lot of food and health advocates are considering this a victory. But to my mind, <clears throat> this new this change only has the potential to affect a few consumers. And studies show that most of the consumers affected by labeling are the ones who are already healthy. And this is because people who do not have a lot of disposable income to spend on food, don't have a lot of choice. So the labels are irrelevant to them. So instead of putting all of the resources of the government's food policy into things like an improved food label, I would rather see things like improved school lunches for children who cannot afford to send home lunches to school who are in the public schools we had the issue last year of pizza being counted as a vegetable, uh, which only harms children who won't have other vegetables in their meals if the school doesn't provide them. Or, for example, a change in agricultural subsidies that right now make soft drinks cheaper than juice for kids. So there are two things that come to mind for me when you're talking about that. One is, I think, um, what about the question of, well, trans- can't there be can't there be both and as a response to that, uh, your proposal, so we can both have more information be available to consumers and then also work on these broader structural issues? I think um, arguably transparency, or not arguably, I think transparency is a much cheaper thing to implement than um, than allocating funding to different types of programs, and maybe maybe both are needed. So what would your response be to that? <clears throat> I absolutely agree with that, and that is the ideal, the both and. Transparency helps some people, and the structural reform would help more people. My concern is that there's so much cooperation between the food industry and the government 
that the focus on transparency and things like behavioral economics to change children's uh, food selections in the lunchroom are actually intentional to please the corporations and the higher income consumers without having to make structural reforms. So I'm not against transparency. I think transparency is a wonderful thing that can help some people, but I just don't like to see it being used as a tool that dominates food policy. Or that perhaps um, it releases some pressure on these issues. Right. Right. Do, um, do some would also, I think, argue that transparency can at times have structural implications because of product reformulation and in reaction to labeling or, or new types of disclosure requirements. And I think there is some evidence of that, for example, with, with, um, with trans fat labeling. So is that something that, that you think does have a wider, wider implication for the population? I would hope that it does. So, for example, when the dietary guidelines said that whole grains should be eaten as a greater percentage of the diet, more companies started making whole grain pasta and breads and things like that. But the follow-up studies did not show any impact on consumer health. So I think that's important. It's a good thing, but it's unclear whether it's actually making a difference or not. And some of that uh, might have to do with, you know, are those items being used in the school cafeterias, right? Are they purchasing the whole wheat spaghetti so that it reaches a broader section of the population? So I want to have a, a chance to hear from you both about this question of audience, of who the audience of transparency is, because I think you know, one potential audience is the actual consumer making their individual purchasing choice, and the other is the media or some of, some of the society as a whole, um, which, Erica, you talked a little bit about the importance of that to driving supply chain changes. So what, um, what do you think the implications are in terms of the impacts of transparency depending on who the different audience is? So, Andrea, maybe you can take a, a crack at that first. Yes. I like to think of transparency not only as this food labeling, but also as um, consumer and general public awareness about collaborations between the food industry and the government and how in the hopes that this could compel a sort of social movement that would help to separate these things and to make food healthier. An example is the tobacco industry, which was generally demonized in the public, and that led to stricter tobacco laws and regulations, which were ultimately helpful for everybody. So I think that type of transparency is very important. Erica, do you have any thoughts on that question? I, I do. I, mean, I really appreciate the work that Andrea is doing, because I don't think there is as much space as perhaps there needs to be for transparency in government and the connection and relationship between industry and government. Um, that you're not going to find on a food product label. Um, I think that is and remains the work of investigative journalists um, and others at, at, at this stage. Um, but not knowing that, not having that, um, I, I think is something that leaves us impoverished with respect to policy formation and understanding um, how laws and policies are shaped and what their impacts are. Um, but I believe in radical transparency. I do think that 
more clear, coherent information um, is going to be what drives change. Um, we have a right to receive information as consumers. That's a corollary of the First Amendment right to have freedom of expression. Um, we have a right to hear and receive information. So um, as consumers, I've talked to industry who were convinced that, you know, less than 10% of consumers care where their kit gas bar comes from. Um, but beyond that, I, I think there's a societal value in having information. And I do think that growing numbers of consumers are going to care, particularly as we have to stretch our dollars further and further um, in, in the present economy. So um, having information is a mode of enforcement in many ways. Um, we don't have the staffing at the Food and Drug Administration to do enforcements. One of the speakers at the conference um, the past week made points about the numbers um, that I found were really striking, um, the low numbers of enforcement actions that are taken um, despite having laws, despite having labels. So information, that I think, can help us cultivate an ethic beyond doing what is the bare minimum um, of regulating our food to really elevating food to a place where it needs to be since it plays such a significant or holds such a significant place in our, in our lives. So. Yeah, and I think um, when I hear you talk about that, it reminds me of another idea I think that came out of the conference and that comes up when you talk about the implications of transparency, which is this consumer citizenship connection um, and that the, the role of buying can have a citizenship component to it. So, I, But there is a cost information. There's often an actual cost in terms of dollars that's passed on to the consumer. And I want to get your thoughts on what are the implications of that? A lot of the products that have more information about how they're produced, if they're fair trade certified or even organic, um, some of that is just the information itself. Some of that is the actual production methods. But the, it's a price, they're a price premium for the consumer to sometimes know more about the sourcing. And what does that mean for the average American or maybe particular low-income consumers about their ability to, to take advantage of that information? Yeah, I think Andrea was directly on point on, on, the, on this issue. Um, choices are things that are unfortunately far too often reserved to the privileged. Um, people who have the ability to make choices um, in ways that are not constrained um, in, in quite the same way um, will benefit from information. But to the extent that there can be changes throughout the food system based on niche consumer markets, that could, down the line, serve to benefit more people. Um, but it, it, is, um, it is a reality of inequality that I think needs to be addressed, that transparency can play a part of, but we're a long way off from that. Um, on price premiums, I've also seen research that people um, who have the ability to pay more are often willing to pay more but not in every context. So um, there have been studies on coffee. Shade-grown doesn't seem to bring as much as a premium as organic or certified. Um, so this will probably be shifting terrain as consumer preferences and taste change, um, which will be informed by how much transparency there is about the conditions under which products were produced. Um, but we're moving in the direction of wanting more information, and that will come with cost premiums. So as we get, um, we have just a couple of minutes left, but I also wanted to see if I could hear from you both. Just, I'm always interested to know what set you down the path of working on food issues. So Andrea, can you just share how you, as a law professor, began to turn to this and what got you interested in it? 
Absolutely. I've always been fascinated by food, and it's such a basic thing in everybody's life. It impacts all of us, and it's, to me, the core of human existence. If you can't eat well, you'll be sick, you'll die, right? So I just think it is so fundamental that I felt compelled to write about it. Um, I was attracted to the contradictions and the connections, right? We're all intimately connected to where our food comes from, and we don't know in many cases where that is. Um, The contradictions that I find perplexing is um, we have an obesity epidemic at the same time there's starvation and and deprivation in parts of this country, the same country. So how can it be that we have wealth and plenty and scarcity at the same time, um, Mm -hmm. that we are dependent on systems we know little about, um, and that there hasn't been further development in this area. So there's just a range of things to work on, a range of um, legal issues that are important and complex that touch on food, whether it's looking at things through the lens of the environment or through human rights or through administrative law. Um, it, it really seems a boundless subject that is is ripe for research. And my last question, so... For some of us, the more you learn about food, the harder it becomes to shop. Um, so how do you, does your work, has your work affected your shopping? And do you, as my husband makes fun of me for doing, you know, loiter in the grocery aisles, studying labels, <laughs> or, or, or no? Absolutely. I feel like every day I cross one more thing off the list of things <laughs> I'm willing to eat. <laughs> and it makes it really difficult, not only in shopping, but in being out in the world, you know, at restaurants, at conferences where you don't have that opportunity for transparency and you don't know what it is in the food that you're about to eat. So, so I, I, I like a more narrowing difficult. diet. How about you? How about you, Erica? Yeah, I do. I, I spend a lot of time looking at labels. I also sort of am curious, and even when window shopping, we'll ask questions like, oh, is this diamond certified, or are you part of this process? And, you know, I'm surprised to know that shop and store clerks are able to say, yes, we're part of the Fair Labor Initiative, or yes, we are signatories to this code. And so um, I'm encouraged by the increasing awareness of these issues, and it it has shaped and changed my my buying habits and the places where I choose to shop. And that's going to be where we leave it. So I want to just thank you both so much for sharing your perspectives, both on your research and your shopping habits. I appreciate you joining me today. That will bring us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. The show is available online uh, at heritageradionetwork.org or on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.